After a years-long delay, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration is moving to crack down on a major U.S. drug distributor over its role in the opioid crisis. It's Friday, May 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. The Republican presidential primary is growing and candidates are trying to appeal to former President Trump's base. There's Trump and there's everyone else. So all of the candidates have to orient themselves around Trump to some degree. The executive producer behind American Born Chinese explains why his graphic novel would not have been adapted for TV back in 2006 when it came out. Not just a a majority Asian cast, it's a show where a significant amount of dialogue is delivered in Mandarin. It's a completely different world now. It's 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Another member of the far-right Oath Keepers group is ordered to spend time in prison for her role in the 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. At her sentencing today, Jessica Watkins tearfully told the court she was, quote, just another idiot running around the Capitol. She went on to say, quote, today you're going to hold this idiot responsible, end quote. Watkins is getting more than eight years behind bars for obstruction and conspiracy. She was acquitted of seditious conspiracy, but yesterday Oath Keeper's founder, Stuart Rhodes, was sentenced to 18 years in prison on that rare charge. All but a small contingent of lawmakers are gone from Washington, D.C. for the long holiday weekend. A few are staying behind to bridge a divide that without a resolution soon will prevent the United States government from making good on its existing debt for the first time. Economists have been warning that scenario is not just bad news for the health of the U.S. economy, but also for markets around the globe. NPR's Barbara Sprint reports on the anxiety-inducing negotiations to reach a compromise that increases the nation's debt limit. The contours of a deal on raising the debt ceiling may be starting to take shape. But Louisiana Republican Garrett Graves, who was tapped by Speaker Kevin McCarthy to lead negotiations, said his team and the White House are still far apart. But I want to be clear, we continue to have major issues that that, um, we have not bridged the gap on right now. One of the sticking points in negotiations, House Republicans want to include work requirements for able-bodied adults without dependents who receive food stamps or other forms of government assistance. Graves said he is absolutely not willing to budge on the work requirement issue. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, The Capitol. More than 42 million people across the United States are hitting the road or flying away somewhere for the Memorial Day holiday weekend. NPR's David Shaper reports from Chicago's O'Hare Airport that airlines are working to minimize flight delays and cancellations under pressure from the federal government. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says this may be the busiest summer for air travel ever, and it's off to a very strong start as the TSA screened more travelers Thursday than on any other day since the start of the pandemic. This is, uh, I think, a next level of test for the system. Judge says it is a good thing that the airline industry is recovering so strong. But it means that the system is really going to be pressed to keep up with it, and that's what we're watching so closely on the aviation side. Widespread flight delays and cancellations filed up travel plans for hundreds of thousands of people last summer. Buttigieg says the airlines need to compensate travelers for significant disruptions that are due to staffing, maintenance, or other issues within the airline's control. David Shaper, NPR News at Chicago's O'Hare Airport. The Dow closes up 328 points. It's NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Alston is a wonderland for music lovers this weekend. This afternoon, NPR Tiny Desk contest winner Lisa Amador kicked off Boston Calling. Seventeen bands are performing today. The Foo Fighters are tonight's headliner. Du Dong from New York City is taking it all in. I mean, you see so many people, you get a nice day out, and uh, a lot of different things to try, new food, new music, new everything. It's kind of cool. Boston Calling at the Harvard Athletics Complex in Alston runs through Sunday night. The head of the FBI's Boston division is stepping down. The FBI announced today that the retirement of Joseph Bonavolanta becomes effective in two weeks. Bonavolanta has worked for the Bureau for 27 years. He took over the Boston division just over four years ago, overseeing all FBI operations in Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. House Minority Whip Congresswoman Catherine Clark of Massachusetts held an event in Revere today to call attention to what's at stake in the showdown between Democrats and Republicans over a debt ceiling agreement. Revere Veteran Service Director Mark Silvestri says the threat of losing government assistance is making Gold Star families anxious as Memorial Day approaches. And instead of remembering the service, the honor and prestige that they're loved one went to war or combat with, they're worrying if they're going to be able to feed their kids, if they're going to put gas in their tank. Clark accuses Republicans of proposing extreme budget cuts. The nation could default on its debts if there is no deal by next week. Holiday traffic is causing long delays on the expressway in both directions. It's also slow going on Route 95 south through Walpole. If you're driving to the Cape, you'll find just short backups to the Bourne and Sagamore bridges. The pike from 128 to Natick is backed up. It's 58 degrees in Boston, lows in the upper 40s tonight, a sunny Saturday, highs tomorrow in the mid-70s. WBUR supporters include Ion Television, presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The Republican presidential field is starting to get crowded. I am tonight announcing my candidacy. This is a cultural movement to create a new American dream. I've been doing TV and radio for 40 years, mostly criticizing politicians. When you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I am a candidate for president of the United States. The next American century starts Today. I'm running for president to lead our great American comeback. Seven candidates, including a former president, a sitting senator, current and former governors, an entrepreneur and a talk radio host. They all have the same goal, winning over the conservative base. But how have the priorities of that base shifted since Trump's presidency? And how is this new crop of candidates playing to those voters? To talk more about all of that, we called up Molly Ball. She's a national political correspondent for Time magazine. Hey, Molly, welcome. Thanks, Juana. Great to be here. Walk us through, if you can, some of the nuance between these candidates. How are they differentiating themselves? Well, I think, first of all, 
there's Trump and there's everyone else. So all of the candidates have to orient themselves around Trump to some degree, whether it's on policy, whether it's on personality. Uh, so far, most of the contrasts that we're hearing are much more about sort of personality and tone. You have, you know, candidates like uh, Tim Scott trying to sell a more optimistic vision that's less uh, less focused on conflict and, and, and drama. Uh, a lot of the candidates are sort of implicitly uh, contrasting themselves uh, with the constant scandals that seem to surround Trump. Uh, I think with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, that's clearly a big part of the pitch. The idea being that uh, he might share a lot of policy positions with Trump, but he would be more effective because he wouldn't constantly be mired in scandal and he would be more focused on policy. I mean, you've been covering national politics for a long time. How different are some of the priorities that this crop of Republican candidates is running on compared to, say, what we might have seen in a Republican primary field a decade or so ago? It's very different. And I think you really see the changing face of the Republican Party in this year's crop of candidates. More than anything, you have a party that has refocused itself almost entirely on the so-called culture wars. And so where the traditional sort of Reaganite Republican Party was focused on the sort of famous uh, three-legged stool of a sort of international approach to national defense, a sort of hawkish foreign policy position, uh, a focus on, on small government when it came to taxes and spending, and then a sense of the traditional family when it came to cultural issues, this Republican Party is much more populist, is much more fiscally liberal in some ways. I think it's a real difference from the past. As we've been talking about, Donald Trump's influence looms incredibly large as a candidate. He's a former president. He's running again. He leads in early polls. But I'm curious, when you think about conservative philosophy, conservative policy, how much power does he still have to set the agenda for his party? It's such an interesting question because I think we've seen Trump be both a leader and a follower. On the one hand, when you think about an issue like free trade that was such a core tenet of uh, Republican philosophy for so long, that was something that Trump just completely blew up starting in 2016. He identified that there was this sort of working class base of the Republican Party that was interested in things like tariffs, even if the thought of something like that would make a sort of a Paul Ryan blanch. Uh, and so the party has followed him uh, in that direction. But he also, I think, has been a follower when it comes to some of this culture war stuff. Uh, issues about, uh, again, education, LGBTQ issues, particularly issues about uh, transgender kids. Uh, we've seen Trump, I think, follow the lead uh, of the base and of other politicians in embracing those issues. And that's clearly where the sort of pulse of the party is right now. Any candidates waiting in the wings who may enter the race and offer a significantly different conservative agenda compared to the candidates who have already declared? We still have yet to see former Vice President Mike Pence get in the race. He is offering something that's a much more traditional Republicanism offering to make the Republican Party great again, if you will, take it back to a sort of Reaganite vision. And then you have some more overtly anti-Trump candidates who are considering running. Someone like uh, Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, uh, Chris Sununu, the current governor of New Hampshire. Both of them have been quite blistering in their critiques of Trump and are somewhat unpopular with 
with the Republican base uh, as a result. But both of them and, and, and possibly some others are considering getting in the race just in order to have a candidate who would make that full-throated case against the frontrunner on the debate stage. So they really could bring uh, a very different argument to the, the Republican primary. That was Molly Ball. She's a national political correspondent for Time magazine. Molly, thank you. Thank you, Anna. After a four-year delay, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration is cracking down on a company that allegedly sold suspicious orders of opioid pills. The DEA says it will strip the firm Morrison-Dixon of its license to sell pain pills within 90 days unless some kind of settlement is reached. Critics say the government waited too long to take this action. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann is covering this. Hi. Hi, Ari. Uh, What did the government say this company did wrong? So Morrison Dixon's one of the four biggest drug wholesalers in the country. And like those other corporations, they earned a lot of money shipping vast quantities of these opioid pills, these highly addictive pain pills. The DEA says over a four-year period, Morrison Dixon shipped roughly 12,000 suspiciously large orders of pills without notifying authorities. So back in 2019, a federal judge concluded the company acted with cavalier disregard for federal safety rules. He urged the DEA to revoke the company's opioid license. So today, the DEA finally acted in this order signed by DEA Administrator Ann Milgram. The government says the firm failed to accept responsibility, and I'm quoting here, for the full extent of their wrongdoing and the potential harm it caused. So four-year delay in taking action. Why did the government take so long? Yeah, the DEA acknowledges this took years longer than typical. They blame the delays on the company's legal filings and on disruptions caused by the pandemic. But there's something interesting here. This delay follows closely on an investigation published by the Associated Press. The AP found one of DEA's top officials, a guy named Louis Milioni, actually worked as a consultant for Morrison Dixon as the company was scrambling to avoid punishment. Milioni then joined the DEA in 2021, and this has raised concerns about the revolving door between the pharmaceutical industry and government regulators. In its legal filings, the DEA says Milioni recused himself uh, from any role in this case. They say he did not influence these delays. Now that the government has acted, what does the company say? Well, they sent a statement to NPR, and they actually thank the DEA for not revoking their opioid license immediately. There is now this final 90-day window for the company to work to reach some kind of settlement. And the company says they have already done a lot of work to improve safety systems and to improve their compliance with federal opioid rules. Put this into context for us. What role did drug distributors like this company play in the overall opioid crisis? Yeah. So what government officials and public health experts say is that these companies continue to sell and ship just vast quantities of pain pills to pharmacies all over the U.S. long after it became clear that these pills were being diverted and abused. Addiction rates and overdose deaths were soaring. It's also widely believed that these corporate practices really opened the floodgates to the wider opioid problem we're grappling with now, you know, street drugs like heroin and fentanyl. It's important to say the other three big distributors involved in the opioid business, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson, they have been allowed to continue selling pain pills and and they've never acknowledged any wrongdoing, though they have agreed to pay more than $21 billion in settlements. 
One other thing here is that there has been intense criticism of the DEA and other federal regulators for not cracking down on all of these companies faster. So the delay in this case, it's renewed concerns that the government still isn't doing this oversight fast enough or aggressively enough. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann, thank you. Thank you. Last week, a crowd gathered in Lagos, Nigeria, to celebrate an attempt at a new world record. Chef Hilda Bassi cooked for four days straight. She ended her cookathon at 100 hours of nonstop cooking. The previous record was 87 hours. Bassi learned to cook from her mother, who was a caterer, but she didn't grow up dreaming of being a chef. She actually wanted to study medicine. But then I just realized that cooking was something that came very naturally to me. And I remember doing it even in university where I used to cook for events in my school. So she became a chef. She owns a restaurant, makes cooking videos, teaches classes. And she thought one way to make a name for herself was to take on the Guinness World Record for marathon cooking. In the beginning, I was going through a huge wave of anxiety and fear. Bassi says the support of her brother and her fans kept her going through the physical and mental exhaustion. So there's something my brother had said to me that was so profound. And he said to me, you know what, you've not dropped yet. You're still standing and you're still able to put things in the pot. So just keep doing it until you can't do it anymore. She wanted to highlight African food in her world record attempt. And so the menu featured more than 55 recipes, many of them Nigerian. I made coconut rice. I made afang soup, egusi soup. I made ukwa. I made ukobi. Despite her exhaustion, Vasi says the cookathon was like a four-day-long party complete with a large crowd and lots of Nigerian music. Bassi says one artist who's not Nigerian was particularly inspiring. I listened to a lot of Taylor Swift. In fact, we had a whole Taylor Swift concert during the Kukatoon because, you know, I kept listening to love stories and you belong with me. Bassi tells us she's just submitted all her evidence to the Guinness World Records team and she hopes to hear back soon. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 4.18 and coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, why do lullabies help kids fall asleep faster? You'll get the answers according to science. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund. Founded in 1995 by civil rights leader Lenny Zakem, the fund has granted over $12 million to nearly 400 grassroots organizations committed to advancing social, economic, and racial justice. The LennyZakemFund.org. On Wall Street today, the Dow gained 1%. The S&P closed up 1.3%. The Nasdaq ended the day up just over 2%. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animals in need by donating to animal welfare organizations, rehabilitation farms, wildlife centers, and nonprofit rescue organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. 
The holiday weekend forecast looks good for outdoor events. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce has the forecast. This beautiful stretch of weather is going to continue for the next several days at least, along with a warming trend. Tonight will be mostly clear, cooling into the 40s for many of us, rebounding quickly tomorrow, though, in the mid to upper 70s with lots of sunshine. Sunday will be the warmest day this weekend. We'll climb into the low to mid 80s with mostly sunny skies and a gusty southwest breeze. Memorial Day will be a little bit cooler, mainly at the coast in the low 70s, but still very pleasant and around 80 inland. It is 58 degrees now. Join WBUR Thursday, June 8th at the Somerville Theater for the Moth Main Stage featuring live music and true stories told live. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to develop new cancer therapies by attacking cancer through multiple pathways. More about this momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org slash stories. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. American Born Chinese opens with the beginning of a new school year for Jin Wang. He's a Chinese-American teen who just wants to be a normal high school student, playing on the JV soccer team and flirting with his crush. Until he is pulled out of class and introduced to a new student. What's going on? Hi, my Chinese isn't super good. Oh. Well, this is Wayne Chang. Wei Chen. He's a new student and he's Chinese, like you. Uh, okay. The two get off to a bit of a rocky start, but Jin soon realizes that his new friend, Wei Chen, isn't just any foreign exchange student. He is actually from a supernatural realm. His dad is the powerful, mythical Chinese figure known as the Monkey King. He lives in heaven. His name is Sun Wukong. He's a monkey king. Okay, cool. Jin, wait. I know it's hard to believe, but it's real. This show, American Born Chinese, was adapted for Disney from the 2006 graphic novel of the same title. It was written and illustrated by Jean Luen Yang. American Born Chinese, the book, is set in the vague 80s, 90s, which matches my own childhood. And in it, he tackles racist stereotypes of Asian people. So... A warning. Our discussion of those racist stereotypes will include a racial slur. Yang, who's also an executive producer on the show, says that the creative team decided to set the TV series in the present-day 2020s rather than in the past, which meant that the show had to differ quite a bit from the original book. The conversation about Asian Americans, about race in general, has changed from then until now. One of the hopes is that, you know, if you read the book, and you also watch the show, that the differences will say something about what's changed for us as a community. Including the way anti-Asian racism shows up in our everyday lives now. One of the biggest changes they made was how the show portrayed one particular character. In the graphic novel, the character is this amalgamation of a bunch of racist stereotypes of Chinese people. He has narrow eyes, buck teeth, a braid, he speaks with an over-the-top accent, and he has an intentionally offensive name. 
Chin Ki. I asked Jean Luen Yang why he wanted to create such an exaggerated racist character for his book all those years ago. I would trace uh, the origins of that character to my senior year English class in high school. We did uh, a mm. unit on satire. You know, we read A Modest Proposal. And I was kind of struck by the power that satire has to critique society. And, and you're right. He is intentionally offensive. He was the embodiment of all of these ideas about who I was, who we are, that have haunted me since I was a kid, you know, and, and in a lot of ways, doing that portion of the book, drawing that character on paper was kind of like an exorcism. So by the end of the book, I actually have this um, this panel where I take off his head. And there was just something very, very satisfying about drawing that mm -hmm. panel. And in fact, that character was one of the reasons, one of the big reasons why I was so hesitant for so long. Yeah, tell me why. Because I read that that character was part of the reason you didn't want to adapt the book for screens. Yeah. Why? Yeah, I was, I was kind of freaked out. I was freaked out that if that character ever made it onto the screen, um, decontextualized clips of that character would show up on social media. And it would be the exact opposite of what I was trying to do with the book. You know, I, I feel like um, in the book, I have enough pages to make it very clear that I'm working within the confines of satire. But once it's released, I was freaked out that people would just clip it. Right, make ubiquitous this totally offensive character. But yeah, let me ask right. you about the solution that the TV series team came up with because Chin Ki takes on a totally different form in the show. Instead, his name is Freddie Wong. He's a mm -hmm. character from like a 90s sitcom. Beyond Freddie Wong is himself a stereotype. Ah, yes. Oh, Mr. Henderson, rest in peace. He have gone to meet his Maytag. <laughs> this character is a short man, has a bowl haircut, wears dorky clothes, always gets bonked on the head. That's my wise answer to say, what could go wrong? Why did you feel the Freddie Wong character was the way to adapt the Chin Ki character for a TV screen? Yeah, we needed a character that represented those stereotypes that have haunted us, you know, so it was a, a conversation between Melvin Marr, an, another executive producer, Kelvin Yu, who ended up being the showrunner and me. And a lot of that came out of Kelvin's own experience. So what Kelvin did, which I thought was brilliant, was first he took the fear that I had about this cousin character getting decontextualized and showing up on social media. He, he took that fear and he made it a plot point in the very first episode. And then the second thing he did was he um, took that cousin character and he kind of uh, fed it through his own experience as an Asian American actor in Hollywood and out came Freddie Wong. But was there a fear that Freddie Wong would also then be taken out of context and turn into some real life meme, just like he did in the TV show? Yeah, that's right. I, I think what we're hoping is that because that happens in the television show, uh, and it's because it happens in the very first episode, that uh, the story itself will teach the audience how to think about characters yeah. like that. Right. Like in, in the story itself, you actually see the impact of those images on the main character and on his feelings and his relationship towards his family. Mm-hmm. When your graphic novel came out back in 2006, could you have imagined it becoming this huge TV series from a major studio? 
No. Like, what are you? What are you, what are you no. processing right now? <laughs> no, it's my my life has been really strange. When the book came out in 2006, there just wasn't a lot of interest in adapting it to the screen. I think people were worried about whether a mostly Asian cast would be able to carry a show, you know, uh, and and there was some talk about adapting it as an animated series because if you did that, then you could at least get some big name non. Asian actors to voice some of the characters. That was the thought. Interesting. So to go from a world like that to, to now, where you have a studio like Disney willing to invest in a show that has not just a, a majority Asian cast, but it's a show where a significant amount of the dialogue is delivered in Mandarin. You know, that's mm-hmm. um, it's a completely different world now. Times have changed. So what do you hope for kids like Jin, who are from Asian immigrant families, what do you hope that they will take away from watching a TV show like this? Part of my growing up experience is accepting my own heritage, you know, accepting the the history of me and my family and seeing the things that used to embarrass me as a kid as a strength, as those things are things that I ought to be proud of. And I Mm -hmm. hope... um, Anybody who watches, they are able to see the things that are difficult in their lives that they might even find embarrassing as gifts. I love that. Well, I hope that lesson does imprint. Jean Luen Yang is the executive producer and graphic novel author behind the new TV series, American Born Chinese. Thank you so much for being with us. I so enjoyed this, Jean. Yeah, thank you. It was really an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429 and coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll get the latest on very low cable news ratings that and much more ahead on All Things Considered. Listening to WBUR is a great way to keep up with all the latest developments and You have another helpful option, your inbox. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today gives you a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. It's 58 degrees in Boston. Tomorrow, sunshine highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru. Introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra. On Route 60 in Belmont and at CitysideSubaru.com, love is now electric. And the Umbrella Art Center, with the musical adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer-winning classic, The Color Purple, now through June 4th, theumbrellaarts.org. Rachel Louise Snyder's father lined up some suitcases when she was 16 and told her to pack up and leave. Her restaurant job became a makeshift family. I did sleep in my car a few times, but not very many, because those people looked out for me, arguably in a way that my own parents did not. (laughs) Her memoir, Women We Buried, Women We Burned, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Texas, after years of legal and ethical scandals, the state's Republican Attorney General faces a rare impeachment vote that could quickly remove him from office. Attorney General Ken Paxton faces a long list of misconduct charges, 
including alleged bribery, obstruction of justice, and abuse of public trust. From the Texas newsroom, Sergio Martinez-Beltran has more on the extraordinary vote to impeach the AG. Now the articles of impeachment move to the House floor uh, for a vote by the full chamber. It would only require a simple majority to impeach him, and that panel is led by Republicans. Uh, so this isn't necessarily a partisan vote. And we already know multiple Republicans will vote for this resolution. They will vote to impeach. Paxton has served for about a decade and, and has been re-elected twice. He's very popular with Republican voters in Texas and a big supporter of former President Donald Trump. Hollywood writers have been on strike now against studios for a month. NPR's Mandalik Del Barco tells us they've been keeping their spirits up with special picket lines. Mariachi bands have serenaded striking workers outside Netflix and Disney studios, and for the past month, protests have included Superhero Day, Taylor Swift Day, Star Trek Writers Day. Live long and prosper. While holding picket signs, writers have gathered to sing karaoke, dance, and mingle. TV writer Daniela Sanchez-Witzel is a strike captain. It seems like, oh, look at them, they're having so much fun out there. And to me, I say, yes, if there can be any joy in this very difficult, hard time, this is a huge thing to be on strike. Coming soon are picket-themed days honoring K-pop and Beyonce, as writers demand higher wages and residuals from streaming services. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles. Stocks finished higher as we head towards the long weekend. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. New research indicates the state's hands-free driving law is not working. That's according to Cambridge Mobile Telematics, a company that collects digital data from millions of cars. The Boston Globe reports the firm's research shows that in 2022, Massachusetts drivers spent 28% more time handling their phones while driving than they did in 2020. That's the year the law took effect. There was a close call at Norwood Airport today. A passenger on a small plane grabbed the flight controls and forced the pilot to make an emergency landing. The pilot maintained control of the plane and landed the aircraft safely. No one was hurt. Police say the passenger has developmental disabilities. A Boston art show is exploring unadulterated black joy with examples that include crafting butterfly lanterns, jumping rope, and roller skating. WBUR's Cristela Guerra says these activities accompanied a month-long art exhibit by Black mothers and artists. A group of Black mothers held up paper lanterns in a dark room and shined a light through the center. On the ceiling, the shadows looked like butterflies. Together, they started to sing. In this gallery, Black Joy is on display through poems, mixed media, and paintings. Artist Lisa Lee held the workshop. So we're engaging in self-care, and all of that is therapeutic as we talk about serious matters like raising a Black son. The exhibit features work from Black mothers and artists across Boston. It's on display through Sunday at the Piano Craft Gallery on Tremont Street. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. The roads are crowded with people getting away for the long weekend. Route 3 South through Marshfield and Duxbury is slow going. Traffic's also slow on 128 through Braintree and Route 95 South through Walpole. There are backups at the Bourne and Sagamore bridges. It's 434. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston, lacuchara.com. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. In the forecast, lows in the upper 40s tonight. Tomorrow, plenty of sunshine. Highs in the mid-70s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Once again, voters in Turkey will try to elect a president on Sunday. It's a runoff between the top two candidates after the first round of elections did not produce a clear winner. Turkey's strongman incumbent Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been in power two decades, and he faces his biggest challenge ever in opponent Kemal Kelic Darolu. That makes it a critical election for a regional powerhouse and a key U.S. ally. NPR's Fatma Tanis is covering it from Istanbul. Hi there. Hi. What's the scene like there right now? Well, it's vibrating with anticipation. You hear political debates on the street. Um, I passed by one young man who was passionately trying to convince his neighbor to switch sides to no avail, it seemed. Uh, Later, outside the Spice Bazaar today, um, there were rivaling campaign buses next to each other, blasting their own music, and crowds of supporters were dancing each their own political tune. You know, elections are a big deal in Turkey, and voter turnout is really high. You know, we're talking about 89% turnout in the last round. Uh, People here feel that their lives are directly impacted by politics And for many, this election in particular is a matter of life and death, they say. Personally, the stakes are huge for individuals, but geopolitically, the stakes are also huge. This has been called the most consequential election for Turkey's century-old democracy. Explain why. Well, many here see it as a referendum vote between two different Turkeys. We already know what Erdogan's Turkey looks like after two decades in power. He changed the parliamentary system to a presidential one five years ago. He gave himself sweeping powers. He's known for his religious nationalist rhetoric, uh, but critics say that his one-man rule is just not working. Turkey's economy is in shambles. Erdogan's government struggled to respond to a devastating earthquake in February. And then there are serious concerns about the future of civic freedoms if Erdogan wins what would be his third term. His opponent, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, on the other hand, has promised to change Turkey's governing system back to the parliamentary one, uh, has also promised to end corruption, protect democratic rights. But his own party has a lot of historic baggage with with many voters, and Kılıçdaroğlu has struggled with presenting himself as an alternative to Erdogan, who's seen as a much more charismatic leader. 
the vote was so close two weeks ago. What's happened in the last two weeks, and is it likely to make any difference? Well, so there's a pocket of voters who aren't happy with neither Erdogan nor his opponent. They cast their votes mainly in protest for a third candidate in the first round. Now, that candidate has announced he's backing Erdogan, but that doesn't mean those votes will travel with him. So that's one thing to watch. Another thing is the opposition is struggling a little bit with morale after their loss in the first round, which obviously works to Erdogan's advantage. I met a 28-year-old man today working at a toy shop. His name is Yunus Emre. He voted two weeks ago, but now feels dejected and is not sure if he'll show up this Sunday. He says despite all of the many issues under Erdogan, if he's still able to maintain his popularity, then there's something seriously wrong with the opposition or there's simply no hope for change at all. He says he knows many people around his age that feel the same, and analysts say those votes are critical in deciding the fate of this country. Turkey is such a key U.S. ally. What could be at stake for American interests in this election? Well, one big thing is President Erdogan's personal relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin. The two have gotten closer over the past years, and that's translated into policy. Uh, Turkey has not joined in Western sanctions against Russia. It has also delayed the ratification of Sweden's membership into NATO. Uh, And so that is one big question Western allies are watching how the election will shape up. That's NPR's Fatma Tanis in Istanbul. Thanks for your coverage. Thank you. Okay, parents and caretakers of young kids, listen up. This one's for you. It's been a long day. You're tired. You just want to relax. But you have a kid to put to bed, and they're not sleeping. For our weekly Dose of Wonder series, NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports on her secret weapon for making sleep come faster. Free idea for you to steal. Pretty much every night, I turn on the sound machine and climb up into my 8-year-old's top bunk to lie down with her. Sometimes she wants to talk or just snuggle, but a lot of the time... you want a song? Yeah. Sleep, sleep, sleep. This is a favorite lullaby from the Music Together class she took when she was younger. Just about 90 seconds later... and she is out. Honestly, when it works like this, it makes me feel like I have a superpower or I'm casting a spell. You will fall asleep. Listen to my voice. It does fill me with wonder, but it also makes me curious to understand what's happening and why. So I called Professor Tiffany Field of the medical school at the University of Miami. When you look at lullabies, they're all slow and rhythmical. That can help calm children's thoughts, she says, so they can lull themselves to sleep. She did a study of toddlers and preschoolers taking naps in the university nursery. The teachers played classical music at the beginning of nap time. With the toddlers, there was a 35% faster sleep onset. With the preschoolers, there was a 19% faster sleep onset. So, of course, the teachers loved that. Many of the studies on this are done with preterm infants in the NICU, including one which compared infants who heard Mozart to infants who heard their mother's lullabies, plus a control group that didn't hear any music. And what they found was that the mother's lullabies were more soothing to the infants 
they slept better, but they also um, showed a lot of effects of decreased heart rate and respiration, better feeding, which probably explained why they had fewer days in the neonatal intensive care unit. And their mother's anxiety was reduced. Now, I love to sing, but that is not a requirement, says Field. You can sing badly, or if you really don't want to sing, a back rub can have similar effects. But there is just something about lullabies, says Sam Mayer of the University of Auckland, who directs the music lab. His team did a study where they played songs for infants in an unfamiliar language. Some of the songs were lullabies, and some weren't. When they're listening to these lullabies, even though they're totally unfamiliar and you know, not in the language the baby understands, they relax more. So there's something in like the the kind of DNA of lullaby that, that helps to calm infants. He says in a lot of their research, they turn to lullabies because they're just everywhere, all over the world. Hirut Kasa is from Ethiopia and a mom of two, including a one-year-old son. This is what she sings to him. <laughs> That's the way they sleep. She says it works like magic for her, too. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. If you're driving right now, please don't fall asleep at the wheel. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. For negotiations over raising the debt limit, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy tapped Louisiana Congressman Garrett Graves to lead the Republican team. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports on how he got the job. South Dakota Republican Dusty Johnson says people may not have heard of the lawmaker the speaker is trusting to lead negotiations with the White House. Garrett Graves is anonymous to everyday Americans, and that's exactly the way he wants it. (laughs) Graves helped McCarthy round up the votes to be elected speaker after 15 ballots and over four days of tense talks. Republican Study Committee Chairman Kevin Hearn heads the group of fiscal conservatives and says this about Graves' assignment right now. You have to appoint people that can sit there and grind this out, and that's what uh, Garrett's been charged with doing since you know, back in January, actually, before there was a debt limit issue. Graves is pushing the Speaker's demand to cut the federal budget as part of a deal to increase the country's borrowing authority. Here he is briefing reporters on the talks. The numbers are foundational here. The Speaker has been very clear a red line is spending less money, and unless and until we're there, the rest of it is really irrelevant. Graves was elected to the House in 2014. He's now at the leadership table, coordinating strategy with the five House GOP factions, dubbed the Five Families. Johnson heads the Republican Main Street Caucus, centrist GOP lawmakers, and says that trust is the reason that Graves was elevated. It's my assessment that Garrett Graves has not just the trust of the speaker, he has the trust of the conference, and he has the trust of the Five Families. That is noteworthy. Ohio Republican David Joyce leads another one of these families, the Republican Governance Group, a group of moderates. He says Graves has a reputation for playing practical jokes, 
Recalling one, he played on former Congressman Rodney Davis. He's good at him, so I don't want to sick him on myself, but Rodney Davis one time at a hearing, they set up an iPad on the level behind him and above him with an arrow that said doofus. <laughs> Rodney's making his point. Everybody sees doofus, they don't ever worry saying. Before he was elected to the House, Graves chaired a state coastal board in Louisiana, overseeing construction of levees and negotiating permits for land restoration. In 2010, he was a trustee for the settlement for the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, the largest one in U.S. history. Graves' knowledge on energy projects is coming in handy because permitting reforms are a central policy issue in the discussions. Joyce says mastering policy and the politics of the GOP conference is a balancing act. He's very specific, very detailed, and he's just got a great mind for making sure all the chess pieces are, are moving on the board. Graves has built some good relationships across the aisle. Shalonda Young, the White House budget director and lead negotiator on the debt, is from his district, and they've collaborated to secure money for infrastructure projects there. Vermont Democratic Senator Peter Welch served eight terms in the House and heaped on praise. Garrett is a very effective and uh, skillful person. He's got a great temperament, very smart. If Graves can help broker a deal, he'll likely be called on to help sell it to his party. Johnson says Graves won't be looking for any credit. Many members of Congress are desperate to want you to believe that they're the smartest person in the room. That is not Garrett Graves. For him, it's about the country. For him, it's about the deal. It is not about getting one more list of accolades on Garrett Graves' obituary. But with the clock ticking to get a deal to the president's desk before the country defaults, Graves could also share the blame if things go sideways. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 4.48. And coming up in about five minutes, you'll hear about efforts to get a glimpse of a rare flower that grows in rushing water in only three southern states and blooms briefly in late spring. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. It's 58 degrees in Boston with lows overnight dropping to the upper 40s. For your Saturday, plenty of sunshine and highs in the mid-70s. Sunday sunshine, highs in the mid-80s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And Elizabeth Bain of Commonwealth Standard Realty, offering creative, custom solutions for buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston. More at ElizabethBainHomes.com. When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio even in California or in Michigan or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org slash sponsorship. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. There's a flower found in only three southern states, which blooms for only 24 hours, in the middle of flowing rivers. In just a bit, we'll head to Alabama to learn more about it. But first, a month later, Tucker Carlson's ouster from the Fox News Channel is still resounding throughout cable news and in unexpected ways. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik reports an industry-wide food fight has ensued. Fox's ratings have plummeted by more than half in Carlson's old slot at 8 p.m. and a good 40 percent in primetime. A chunk of those viewers have headed to upstart channel Newsmax. Newsmax has pretty small audiences and very conservative stars and is, all in all, feeling pretty darn good about itself right now. So what, are they putting Bud Light in the water fountains over at Fox News? This is Newsmax host Eric Bowling, a former Fox star who enjoys sticking it to his former network. It certainly looks like Fox's transition to wokeism is complete, and it's clear now that the firing of truth teller Tucker Carlson was just the tip of the woke iceberg. Fox, meanwhile, is targeting Twitter, a place it has lionized as a newly safe place for conservatives. Even so, when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' announcement he would run for president stumbled on Twitter, Fox hosts had a field day. I can't promise you that I won't crash, but Fox News will not crash during this interview. Okay, we're being a little naughty here. Yeah, it was a little glitchy. You have to laugh at yourself. His live Twitter announcement with Elon Musk, that did not go well after Twitter had one technical glitch after another. Fox has been championing DeSantis as an alternative to former President Donald Trump with overwhelming and sympathetic coverage. We just heard Trey Gowdy, Laura Ingram, and Sean Hannity mocking Elon Musk's Twitter and tweaking DeSantis for straying there from Fox. Twitter is not incidentally also where Tucker Carlson has announced he's headed. Amazingly, as of tonight, there aren't many platforms left that allow free speech. The last big one remaining in the world, the only one, is Twitter where we are now. Fox officials say their ratings will turn around once the news appeals again to their core audience and once they solidify their schedule. In the meantime, they have to decide whether to let Carlson out of his big dollar contract to take his act to Twitter. That is, whether to consider the social media platform a diversion or a competitor for the attention of an audience most sought by advertisers. That's people under the age of 55. Younger viewers have been cord cutting like crazy. Jonathan Klein is the former president of CNN. Mostly it's that they have other places to go. They've got other choices. You know, most people feel that one way or another, they've got a general sense of what's going on in the world. And then if anything truly big happens, they're going to get a notification from some app on their phone. And short of something really big, viewers would rather pursue their other interests. Carlson's ouster hasn't just hurt Fox, it's affected the original 24-hour news channel, CNN. CNN is by far the largest newsroom in TV news, and its ratings spike when news breaks. Right now, however, on some nights, it comes in fourth in what's been considered a three-way cable news race, far behind Fox and MSNBC, and now also behind Newsmax, flush with those Fox viewers. John Klein says CNN remains important, but no longer vital. You can say a provocative thing on the Situation Room as a senator or other newsmaker, and suddenly it can be flying across Twitter in an instant uh, or your favorite uh, news app, and suddenly everybody's seen it. Right now, they're just creating content that can live anywhere else. The Carlson cable wars, Klein says, have obscured how much the public is moving away from scheduled television programming, even 
in news. David Folkenflik, NPR News. In parts of the South, there's a unique flower that grows in the middle of moving water. The Cahaba lily, also known as the Shoals spider lily, typically blooms for just a few weeks in late spring. And one of the world's largest populations is thought to be among the rocky shoals of Alabama. Mary Scott Hodgen of member station WBHM took a canoe trip to see the flowers up close. This one looks good, Mary Margaret. They all float, they're all good. I'm with about two dozen people, lined up along the banks of the Cahaba River, just south of Birmingham. We buckle into life jackets and delicately climb into canoes. Sweet. Does anybody not have a seat in a boat? Will Rayner leads the trip. He's with the Cahaba River Society, a local nonprofit. Rayner says we're in for a treat. We are about to paddle down through the Cahaba River National Wildlife Refuge to go see the Cahaba lilies, a very, very cool flower that's pretty geologically um, remote. Cahaba lilies grow in only three states, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. They have big white flowers with spider-like petals. Each flower blooms for just one day, usually between mid-May and mid-June. What's likely one of the world's largest clusters of Cahaba lilies is about a mile downstream from where we begin paddling. After a while, we see water bouncing off of rocks in the distance. The calm gives way to a rocky bottom and a field of white flowers surrounded by shallow water. We park our canoes and carefully walk along the slippery, smooth rocks. Scientist Randy Haddock gathers the group around a clump of the bright lilies. These seem to like this kind of habitat, what they're called foliate rocks or flat rocks. Haddock has studied the Cahaba River for decades. He says the lily bulbs like to wedge into the rocks along the riverbed and nest there. The plants grow about three feet high, and when conditions are just right, lilies bloom one at a time. Haddock says the flowers emit a strong scent, but not during the day. You don't get much aroma off these right now, but uh, it's really in the evening hours and the early dark hours where these things, this place is amazing. It, the, the aroma is not overwhelming because it's pleasant. And that pleasant smell attracts a nighttime pollinator, the sphinx moth, which is drawn to the lily's sweet nectar. Paddlers on the canoe trip, like Sam and Dale Foley, say the journey downriver is well worth it. They're beautiful. beautiful. I mean, We've only ever seen them you know, from a distance. We've been out here you know, walking around amongst them, so it's very nice. The Cahaba River is home to a lot of unique species, including endangered mussels and fish. The Cahaba lily is just one of the rarities found along the rocky riverbed. But to Randy Haddock, the flower is iconic. It's something that has just kind of become a symbol for the Cahaba. And uh, it's just something that has inspired a lot of love and appreciation. Haddock says people are drawn to the lilies because they're beautiful and they're a bit mysterious. Large flowers growing in the middle of moving water, making an appearance just one day a year. For NPR News, I'm Mary Scott Hodgen in Birmingham.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll get a conversation about Disney's The Little Mermaid remake, a discussion involving praise and criticism and a few questions. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village, opening June 7th with the Fats Waller musical Ain't Misbehavin'. After that, it's Jersey Boys and more. Tickets at kplayhouse.com. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. salemstate.edu slash graduate. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A Texas House committee has recommended impeaching Republican Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, stemming from allegations of bribery, obstruction of justice, and more. It's Friday, May 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. A Ukrainian teenager who fled the war is graduating from middle school in New York, and he's already got big plans for the future. I hope that I can start anti-war organization. Also, I'm thinking to volunteer to help other global issues such as climate change. Also, the U.S. debt has led to plenty of partisan fights and charitable gifts. For decades, a government program has been collecting donations from Americans who want to help pay off the national debt. It's 501 First This News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says the contours of a debt ceiling deal are largely worked out. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports sticking points, though, include work requirements and energy permits. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are not scheduled to meet yet on the debt limit, but their negotiators have made progress on an agreement. The deal being worked out by negotiators would raise the government's borrowing limit for two years while putting some caps on federal spending. A source familiar with the talk says the two sides are also close in agreement about IRS funding, but that both sides are dug in on work requirements for social benefit programs. Republicans have argued the provisions are designed to prevent long-term reliance on the government, but that the White House worries the measures would drive Americans into poverty or take their health care away. Negotiators will continue talking today. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, 
the White House. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, meanwhile, has now moved the so-called X date for when the government would run out of money to pay its bills from June 1st to June 5th. In South Carolina, judges put a six-week abortion ban on hold. That means abortions are once again legal there, up to 22 weeks of pregnancy, until the state Supreme Court can hear the case. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen has more. It won't be the first time the South Carolina Supreme Court hears arguments that an abortion ban after six weeks of pregnancy violates the state's constitutional right to privacy. The court overturned a similar law just a few months ago. Since then, the only woman on the bench has retired and been replaced by a man. State lawmakers extended this year's legislative session to pass another ban. Planned Parenthood South Atlantic immediately sued, saying the new law puts already scheduled abortions in limbo. Judge Clifton Newman ruled the status quo should be maintained until the Supreme Court reviews the new law. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Charleston, South Carolina. A federal judge has sentenced two more members of the Oath Keepers for crimes related to the assault on the Capitol. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta handed down the punishments for two Oath Keepers who entered the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Last November, a jury in Washington convicted Jessica Watkins and Kenneth Harrelson of obstructing Congress that day. Watkins will serve eight and a half years in prison. Harrelson will serve four years. The punishments come one day after Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes got an 18-year prison sentence. That's the longest yet in the Justice Department probe into the siege on the Capitol. Rhodes called himself a political prisoner, but the judge said he presented a danger to the republic and that he could take up arms against the government once he's released. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The Dow rose 328 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. State regulators have launched an investigation into the ransomware attack on the parent company of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. The Division of Insurance is monitoring the data breach at Point 32 Health. The insurance giant informed members earlier this week that their patient information might have been stolen in the April attack. Fans are rocking at this year's Boston Calling Music Festival. That's Sleaze performing a cover of Otis Redding's Use Me on stage this afternoon. Susan Cohenchild of Acton came to the festival with two of her friends from Maryland. They're all in their 50s, and Cohenchild says she notices they're slightly older than most concert goers, but that doesn't matter to her. Just being with them and being able to dance and see live music and just have fun. It's just really wonderful. The festival kicked off this afternoon at the Harvard Athletics Complex in Alston. It runs through Sunday night. We are just getting word that Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has approved a new electoral map. The Boston City Council passed a plan on new voting districts earlier this week. A federal judge threw out a previously approved map saying it likely violated the Constitution. Wu said a plan needs to be in place by Tuesday, so the fall elections will not be delayed. Boston Celtics fans are full of hope this weekend. Boston has a chance to even up the Eastern Conference Finals tomorrow night in Miami. They're trying to become the first NBA team to ever win a seven-game series after losing the first three games. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports the Seas have momentum after last night's win over the Heat. The Celtics made it look easy, never trailing at any point in last night's game. Seas guard Derek White says team defense was the key. Just having that defensive mindset 
we're able to get stops, which allowed us to get out and run and uh, get good looks. Head coach Joe Mazzula was also pleased with the effort. It just says that our backs are against the wall and we're sticking together and we're competing at a high level to, you know, give ourselves a chance. Game six is tomorrow night in Miami. The winner of this series will play the Denver Nuggets for the NBA championship. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It is 58 degrees in Boston, lows in the upper 40s tonight. Tomorrow is sunny Saturday and highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A deal is within sight to resolve the fight over the nation's debt. The White House and Republicans are working out the details on a plan to raise the government's borrowing limit for two years. In return, Republican lawmakers would get some cuts to federal spending. But negotiations are not over yet, and time is running out. Earlier today, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said, unless Congress raises the debt ceiling, the U.S. will run out of money to pay its bills by June 5th. Now, while debt talks tend to center around Washington's power players, some everyday Americans have also done their part to resolve the nation's debt by donating their own money to the United States government. Waylon Wong and Adrian Ma from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, tell us about an obscure government program that collects donations from citizens. For almost as long as there's been a United States, there have been Americans who want to give money to the federal government. And I don't just mean paying their fair share of taxes. I'm talking about making a charitable contribution to Uncle Sam. The earliest payment actually goes back to about 1811 during the Madison administration. Some random citizen mailed in five bucks. This is Matt Garber. He works at the U.S. Treasury in an office called the Bureau of the Fiscal Service. And what it does is manage money for federal agencies. Back then, there wasn't any system in place to accept donations like that $5, which, by the way, would be around $100 today. But the money kept coming in. So in 1843, the government set up an account for what it called Gifts to the United States. This was a general all-purpose account. Those funds have evolved over time. Um, Used to be much more physical property, checks, Bags of pennies, bags of gold. And bags really, of gold? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Can you hear more about these yes. bags of gold? <laughs> so, so there is at least one instance that we're aware of where in a manila envelope, wrapped was about $63 in just gold bullion. And once the Bureau of the Fiscal Service gets this stuff, it has to figure out how to convert it to, you know, U.S. currency so it can be deposited into the government's account. Now, for this general gifts to the government fund, there wasn't a way for donors to specify how they would like the money to be spent. But then in the 1950s, Matt says patriotic Americans wanted to help the government pay back the money it had borrowed for war efforts. There's this interest in providing funds just as a pure patriotic duty to offset these debts. So in 1961, the government set up another account, a special account for what it called gifts to reduce the public debt. And it meant that the money in that account could only be used for that purpose. It wouldn't get swallowed up by the general fund. So how much money actually flows into this special debt fund? Well, in 2022, the government collected, drum roll please, $1 million. 
Yep, just a million dollars. In 2021, it was around $1.3 million. And the most the fund has ever held was $20 million in 1994. Most of that was a single large contribution from a civic-minded and apparently very wealthy donor. And even that high watermark of $20 million is a pittance compared to the size of the federal budget. I mean, just last year, the government spent $6 trillion. And Matt says the government wants the debt fund to stay under the radar. It's not an effective way to raise money. So the Treasury does not advertise this program. There's some information about it on the 1040 tax form and a couple of government websites. That's about it. It wasn't supposed to be this massive revenue stream for the federal government. We have lots of other levers that we can pull for that. And yet some people keep sending in their cash, whether it's gold bullion or just a few dimes taped to a piece of paper. Waylon Wong, Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. It's graduation season, and for one young student, the ceremony this Saturday marks the end of a long chapter. It began on the front lines of the war in Ukraine and brought him to a tiny school in upstate New York. North Country Public Radio's Emily Russell brings us his story. On a cold, dark morning last February, a 14-year-old boy in Kharkiv, Ukraine, got up before the sunrise. I woke up pretty early in the morning to do my homework because I just like to do my homework in the morning. That's Yegor. We're not using his last name to protect his family back in Ukraine. And I have heard like strange sound, which I have never heard before. There were rockets, like I couldn't hear rockets. Russian rockets were bombing his hometown. The war in Ukraine had begun. Yegor and his family fled their home. They spent the next night at his grandmother's house where they thought they'd be safe. But Yegor remembers watching that night as fiery rockets flew over their neighborhood. I, I survived this night, but I learned that like houses down the street were just destroyed. Yegor's school was also destroyed. At the time, he was prepping for a national math competition. Math is Yegor's favorite subject. But the war took that away from him, took away his safety and his childhood. So his big brother Dan got to work. He wrote to schools in the U.S. looking for a spot for Yegor. The moment I got Daniel's letter, it certainly pulled at my heartstrings. Uh, We got to find a way to make this happen. That's Bill Newman, head of admissions at the North Country School, a tiny junior boarding school in Lake Placid, New York. They issued Yegor a student visa, offered him a full ride, and Yegor's friends and family raised money for his plane ticket. On Easter Sunday of last year, Newman drove five hours to Boston to pick Yegor up from the airport. I remember he had his older brother's clothes on, and so we had cuffs folded up to the knee. It took a lot just to get Yegor out of Ukraine and into school in the States. He's one of more than a million young Ukrainians to be displaced by the war. Even after he was settled in at the North Country School, Yegor says it took time for it to feel like a place where he could learn and grow. In the start, it was really hard because I didn't know any English and I couldn't communicate with people. I couldn't do my homework properly because I just couldn't understand what's going on. But North Country School has offered me many opportunities. It's a cool spring day and Yegor is showing me around the school's barn. The North Country School is pretty progressive. Students here help raise sheep and chickens, which they later harvest for food. Igor bends down and picks up a little gray cat. 
And who's this in your arms? It's Mercury, his barn cat. His, Mercury? Yeah, he's really a friendly cat. He loves people and animals. The school's barn manager, Erica Burns, says getting students like Yegor to take care of the animals and to do barn chores, it instills a lot in them. It teaches kids how to do hard things and how to do things with consistency and how to be responsible. And I think Yegor has also, like, he's come to this conclusion a lot faster than a lot of people's, like, love and appreciation for the barn. Igor loves riding horses and just spending time with the barn animals. Growing up in the second largest city in Ukraine, Igor says there's no way he could have imagined his life today in rural upstate New York. I have never like thought that I would like change water for the sheep, give them grain, like or milk the goat because I have done milk in the goat and it's pretty hard. Over the last year, Yegor has proven he can do hard things. He's learned English, taken AP calculus, even gone downhill skiing for the first time. As the war in Ukraine rages on, Yegor says he tries not to think about it too much. It's too hard. I miss my family. My mother came visit me during the summer, but I have not seen my father. I, can, I have not seen my grandparents, which is really sad. But somehow, as a 15-year-old, he's found a way to keep going. He's got a full ride to a boarding high school in New York where he'll start this fall. He then wants to go to college in the U.S., Eventually, though, Igor says he does want to move back home to Ukraine. I hope that I can start anti-war organization. Also, I'm thinking to want you to help other global issues such as climate change. Igor has big, grand plans. But first, he's focused on the summer. After he graduates from the North Country School, Igor hopes to travel back home to Ukraine to visit family, the first time in more than a year. For NPR News, I'm Emily Russell in Lake Placid, New York. The family of an 11-year-old black boy from Mississippi is demanding action after he was shot in the chest by a police officer on Saturday. He has been released from the hospital. Michael Gidry with Mississippi Public Broadcasting reports on what is next for his family. Outside Indianola City Hall on Thursday, the mother of Adirian Murray was flanked by supporters holding signs that read, release body cam footage. He told me to get him justice. Those were his words. As Nikayla Murray tells it, last weekend she asked her son to call police because of an intruder in their home. When the officers arrived, the intruder had left. One officer yelled for anyone else in the house to come out. That's when the 11-year-old was shot. Attorney Carlos Moore is representing Murray and his family. What we do know is he obeyed the officer's command. He came out of his room with nothing in his hands and was shot. He was not a threat to anyone. He was simply obeying a command. Adirian Murray was hospitalized five days for a collapsed lung, lacerated liver, and fractured ribs as a result of the gunshot wound. He also had a lot of questions, Moore says. She keeps asking over and over why the officer did this, what did he do wrong? And I keep telling them, his mother keeps telling him he did nothing wrong, and we don't know why. Uh, we've asked the city why, the city hadn't told us why, the officer hadn't told us why. Moore says he and the family have three demands. First, the termination of Sergeant Greg Capers, who fired the shot. They also want a criminal prosecution and immediate release of the body cam footage. The Mississippi Bureau of Investigation has the video and is reviewing the incident. It's standard policy for most police-involved shootings in the state. Moore says the lead agent told him they won't release the tape until the investigation is complete. That's not acceptable to the family. Uh, we need answers sooner than later. This uh, young boy and his family are traumatized, and they need answers sooner than later. Moore says he plans to file a suit in federal court on Tuesday. For NPR News, I'm Michael Guidry in Jackson, Mississippi.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518 and coming up in about 20 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, a student in Colorado is suing after her school told her she cannot wear a sash to graduation that displays both the U.S. flag and the Mexican flag. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 5th, semesteroff.com. On Wall Street today, the Dow gained 1%. The S&P closed up 1.3%. The Nasdaq ended the day up just over 2%. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Heading into the long weekend, traffic's heavy on the expressway down Route 3 through Marshfield, Duxbury, and Plymouth. The backups are not long at the Bourne and Sagamore bridges. Route 95 through Foxborough and Mansfield is very slow. The weather will not be an issue for any of your outdoor plans this weekend, from barbecues to concerts to parades to remembrances. Let's get the forecast details from WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. We'll enjoy sunshine and a warming trend after dropping into the 40s tonight. We'll rebound quickly into the middle to upper 70s tomorrow under mostly sunny skies. We'll be in the upper 60s on Cape Cod. Sunday is the summery day with highs 80 to 85 and a gusty southwest breeze. We'll be around 70 on the Cape. On Monday, a wind off the ocean kicks back in, meaning the coast and beaches will be in the low 70s, still near 80 inland with plenty of sun and a few clouds mixed in. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, extending the life of things you already own instead of throwing stuff out. Also, why it's easier to fix a tractor than your iPhone. That's here on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Has Disney done it again? And if they have, should they maybe stop? Under the sea. These are some of the questions on our minds as Disney's remake of The Little Mermaid hits theaters. The industry juggernaut's latest live-action remake has ingredients needed to dominate at the box office. Star power, good timing, and nostalgia. Lots of nostalgia. But some argue that we should expect more than that in 2023. There's a whole lot to get into here, so we are going to turn this one over to our group chat Today, I'm joined by Aisha Harris, a co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, and also Gene Demby, a co-host of NPR's Code Switch. Hey, y'all. Hey. What's good, Wana? Glad to be here. All right, Aisha, I want to start with you here because you've seen this movie and you reviewed it for NPR. Give us the short version. What did you make of it? Did Disney try anything new here or did they just stick to the same old playbook? 
Well, Disney, I think, has its playbook down pat. Basically, they take an animated classic, as they call it, and then they turn it into a live-action CGI remake. They throw in some familiar faces, and they add a little bit of modernization to it. They might recast it in a different way. Um, and voila, they are making probably a billion dollars. And this is probably <laughs> what's going to happen with this movie. I would not be surprised. Um, so the fact that Halle Bailey is the uh, black Ariel is a big deal. Um, the cast itself is very multicultural. Um, but at the end of the day, it still feels very, very similar to everything they've done with other movies, including Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Jungle Book. As you mentioned, Aisha, Halle Bailey plays Ariel. Wish I could be part of that world. What would I give? And I mean, her voice is gorgeous. She's clearly got a charming presence. But I'm curious about her depiction of Ariel. Are the flaws here more on her performance or is it the construction of this movie? I think it's it's hard to be able to tell because especially when so much of this film is CGI and you have actors performing and against fake backdrops, it's really hard as a performer to be able to really rise above that and and stand out amongst this like cacophony of really ugly visuals. <laughs> um, and I think for me, one of the problems I had with this performance, and it could be just the direction she was given, but she doesn't have the sort of like feistiness and mischievous of the original Ariel. Mm. And I think that's like a core part of this character. And while she's very charming here, um, it's just missing that sort of like fire that I really wanted from a performance like this. Okay, this one's for both of y'all. I remember when we got the trailer for this movie and found out it was coming out, there were all of those videos all over social media. Mm -hmm. I remember scrolling through TikTok, you couldn't miss them, Mm -hmm. of these young black girls who seem to be starstruck by the idea that they're was a black girl as the Little Mermaid. And I had some feelings about that, and I'm curious what you made of all that. Oh, man. I mean, you could almost set your watch to it at this point. Like, whenever there's a big-budget tentpole movie with a black cast, at some point, um, the discourse around that movie becomes about, like, what black people owe to its box office performance, right? If you think, if you go back to Red Tails, right, this not very good movie by George Lucas that came out uh, like a decade ago, it was about the Tuskegee Airmen, and George Lucas, when he was doing the rollout for that movie, was talking explicitly about how Hollywood studios didn't want to bankroll that movie because they had a black cast. They had no sense that there would be enough people out that, that would come out to support this movie. Um, and so people organized around going to see Red Tails. They organized church groups, they organized youth groups, and, and took kids from schools to go because they thought it was important. And the Obamas had a screening uh-huh, of it at I the White that. House. Um, and this, something like that is sort of happening around The Little Mermaid, right? There is this thing called The Little Mermaid Challenge, uh, <laughs> which is um, this, this uh, project by which people are trying to raise money so that little black girls can go see The Little Mermaid in theaters. And on one hand, it's like, oh, that's really cute. You know, the representation is really important. They should see themselves. On the other hand, and this is maybe my cynicism coming through, um, it's like, do we really want to be crowdfunding for Disney, one of the, if not the biggest media company in the world, right? Like, is that a project we should be invested in? And I think those things get muddied a lot, right, when we talk about big tentpole black movies. And I think it's because black folks have historically felt like, oh, my God, if we don't come out and support this movie, they won't make more movies like this. But that also, like, muddies and complicates the way we can talk about it because then the conversation about representation is just about sort of box office performance. It's just about sort of like, um, did we do enough to sort of keep this train moving? To Jean's point, there were um, 
you know, all the right wing conservative talking heads and and people saying, oh, that's not my aerial. Like, I think it was like that was an actual hashtag, like not my aerial, because people were upset that she was black now. And so when you have that tied in, it's not just about this movie as like in terms of box office, but it's also about in terms of like this act of resistance um, that people think they are taking if they go to see this anyway, even if they don't think it's a good thing. Um, So it does make it complicated because people take my critiquing this movie as me not wanting Halle Bailey to win or not wanting like more of these stories and my my response to that is just like I'm rooting for Halle Bailey I'm rooting for you know all of these uh, performers in this movie but like at the same time it's not a good movie and I want better for all of us Jean I'm curious from your perspective what gets lost when we flatten the conversation around race in this way particularly when it comes to the intersection of race and pop culture not to put on like my race hat too hard, but it feels almost as if like we are in a time in which there are so few avenues for us to exert sort of our will like throughout the democratic process, right? And so we're encouraged all the time to like buy and to consume and the way we express our politics is through what we buy. And so it's kind of ridiculous to think about it this way, but these movies become like an expression of our values, right? And going to buy them becomes an expression of our values. Like one of the things about the Little Mermaid discourse that's really interesting to me, and it happens a lot of time around movies with black casts, is that you can even hear it in the way that people talk about them. They don't say, I'm going to go see the movie. I'm going to go. They say, I'm going to support this movie, which is something you do ah. for a political cause and not for a movie about a mermaid and some CGI fish. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like, but that's, that's the way we're talking about this movie, right? Which tells you about like how much weight it is taking on. I mean, this is Disney's, what, 22nd live action adaptation at this point. And wow. First of all, that's crazy. Secondly, there's been this growing kind of concern about the lack of original media that isn't an adaptation or a remake or a spinoff of some franchise. How much of this is just about, I don't know, a lack of creativity and imagination? Or is this just about Disney wanting to avoid risk? I mean, I think it's both of those things, right? This doesn't only apply to Disney. Like, every corporation is doing the same thing. It feels very frustrating as a viewer. And I imagine for people in Hollywood, too, to just be kind of, like, stuck in this rut of constantly having to rehash things. And, I mean, not to bring in a completely... Like, when I think about the writer strike that's happening right now, I wonder how much of that is, like, also tied to this frustration with, like, not being able to, like, have original content and, and writers being kind of forced in order to make a living, even though they're struggling to make a living to begin with, but being forced to make a living to some extent by just taking someone else's property and trying to put a new spin on it. To Aisha's point, I think leaning into sort of the representation uh, sort of anxiety that people have and the desire to see, to come out and support these movies is a way of kind of like critic-proofing and ensuring a certain level of box office, right? The only thing we need is butts and seats. If that means winking at Black people and tell them like, hey... See yourself on the screen. Um, Disney and these studios are not above that kind of nudging. That's Aisha Harris, co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Thanks, Aisha. Thanks so much. And Gene Demby, co-host of NPR's Code Switch. Thanks, Gene. Thank you, Anna. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 5:29 and coming up in about 15 minutes, learning how legislative bills wither and die. We're funded by you our listeners and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty on stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Babson 
top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. Rachel Louise Snyder's father lined up some suitcases when she was 16 and told her to pack up and leave. Her restaurant job became a makeshift family. I did sleep in my car a few times, but not very many, because those people looked out for me, arguably in a way that my own parents did not. <laughs> Her memoir, Women We Buried, Women We Burned, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. White House and congressional negotiators say they're making progress toward resolving the stalemate over the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston tells us the two sides appear to be narrowing their differences ahead of a fast-approaching deadline. The government could start running out of money as soon as next Thursday, sending the U.S. into a potentially catastrophic default. After the latest round of talks, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the framework of an agreement is starting to come together. We're not just trying to get an agreement. We're trying to get something that's worthy of the American people that changes the trajectory. So we're going to work just as hard. We worked through the night last night. I thought we made progress yesterday. The White House says while a few sticking points remain, the contours of an agreement have been largely worked out. The administration says it's possible to reach a deal today, but talks could easily spill over into the weekend. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration has stripped one of the nation's biggest drug wholesalers of its license to sell opioids. The DEA action came after a four-year delay that sparked controversy, as we hear from NPR's Brian Mann. Morrison Dixon, based in Louisiana, faces accusations the company shipped highly addictive opioid pain pills despite evidence the drugs were being misused. In 2019, a federal judge recommended the DEA revoke the company's opioid license because of its, quote, cavalier disregard for safety rules. Now the DEA has finally acted. The company's ability to sell opioids will end in 90 days unless some kind of settlement is reached. In a statement, Morris and Dixon said it's still in talks with the DEA trying to resolve, quote, old issues. Other drug distributors involved in the opioid crisis have been allowed to continue shipping pain pills, but they agreed to tighter oversights and will pay billions of dollars in settlements. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The city of Boston has come up with a new redistricting map that it thinks meets the Federal Voting Rights Act. This hour, the mayor's office confirmed for WBUR that Mayor Wu is signing off on the map that the city council approved earlier this week. The city had to create nine districts of roughly equal size. A federal judge said the city's earlier plan likely violated election laws. The mayor has said the new districts need to be finalized by Tuesday to prevent a disruption of the fall elections. House Minority Whip Congresswoman Catherine Clark of Massachusetts held an event in Revere today to call attention to what's at stake in the showdown between Democrats and Republicans over a debt ceiling agreement. Revere Veterans Service Director Mark Silvestri says the threat of losing government assistance is making Gold Star families anxious as Memorial Day approaches. And instead of remembering the service, the honor and prestige that they're loved one went to war or combat with, they're worrying if they're going to be able to feed their kids, if they're going to put gas in their tank. Clark accuses Republicans of proposing extreme budget cuts. The nation could default on its debts if there's no deal by next week. 
The head of the FBI's Boston division is stepping down. The FBI announced today that the retirement of Joseph Bonavolanta becomes effective in two weeks. He's worked for the Bureau for 27 years. He took over the Boston Division just over four years ago, overseeing all FBI operations in Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island. It's graduation day at UMass Amherst. Two-time Olympic gold medalist and U.S. women's national soccer goalkeeper Brianna Scurry told the graduates to overcome failures because one result does not define you. 7,500 undergraduates and 2,000 master's and doctoral students celebrated at McGurk Alumni Stadium. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, is designed to automate clinical documentation so physicians can spend more time caring for patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. Tonight, the Red Sox are in Arizona against the Cardinals. It's 58 degrees in Boston, with lows dropping to the upper 40s overnight. Tomorrow, a sunny Saturday with highs in the mid-70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel, Plymouth Gin since 1793. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In a few minutes, we'll hear about a Colorado student who is suing her school after she was told that she can't wear a graduation sash displaying both the U.S. and Mexican flags. First, though, to Texas, where tomorrow the state's attorney general, Ken Paxton, will face an impeachment vote in the Texas House. The Republican is popular among voters. He is, after all, a three-term state attorney general, but he is also no stranger to being investigated. Paxton was indicted about eight years ago for securities fraud. He still has yet to face trial for that. This week, a Texas House committee alleges he's committed illegal acts since then. Paxton spoke to reporters this afternoon, calling the impeachment proceedings politically motivated. Every politician who supports this deceitful impeachment attempt will inflict lasting damage on the credibility of the Texas House, which I served in. The Texas Newsroom's Julian Aguilar is here with more. Hey there. How are you doing? Well, so tell us what exactly is the Texas House alleging against Paxton? So the House committee that launched this investigation found that Paxton repeatedly abused his office to help a friend and campaign donor. The donor, Nate Paul, was under investigation by the FBI, and Paxton intervened, according to former members of his staff. So that set off a laundry list of allegations that include disregard of official duty, constitutional bribery, obstruction of justice, and false statements in official records, to name a few. This was all in relation to a $3.3 million settlement that Paxton entered into with former employees turned whistleblowers who reported the allegations and misdeeds. Long list of allegations there. How's Paxton responding? Uh, well, you know, this, this afternoon, Paxton doubled down on his belief that the impeachment proceedings are, are illegal, which you, you all just, you know, had sound for, and it's a witch hunt intended to derail his efforts to stop President Biden's policies in court. Paxton said that there's no other state that has so much influence 
over the, quote, fate of our nation, and he added that his office hasn't been allowed to present its own evidence um, that would absolve the attorney general. He also called on his supporters to go to the Capitol on Saturday to let their voices be heard. Uh, and it's, it should be noted that infighting between Texas Republicans isn't new. The Texas House has for years been considered the more moderate wing of the legislature, and far-right officials have accused the lower chamber of stopping progress on more conservative issues. And we've already seen that play out in this session on issues that include school vouchers and border security. Okay, I've got a process question for you about the impeachment process. What comes next here? Okay, so the legislature gavels out on Monday, but the House will undergo its impeachment proceedings Saturday at 1 p.m. local time. The House needs a simple majority of I votes to impeach. And unlike federal rules, if the House does move to impeach, uh, Paxton would, be, would have to step aside at least until the state Senate acts. Then the matter goes over to the Senate if the House acts, uh, where the Senate would vote to hold the trial and look at the evidence. Two-thirds of the members would need to vote to convict Paxton in order to remove him permanently. The Senate has 19 Republicans and 12 Democrats. Uh, and one of the members is Republican uh, Senator Angela Paxton, who is the Attorney General's wife. Mm. It's not, yeah, exactly, it's not yet clear whether she's required to recuse herself from the proceedings. So it could be a tougher sell to oust uh, Paxton in the state's upper chamber, which is considered a little bit more conservative and where Paxton was once a member. Okay, about 30 seconds left here. You're saying if Paxton's impeached, he would be suspended temporarily. So what does that mean for his job, any cases that the AG's office is involved in? That's a great question, because in one of his responses, Paxton said that the pseudo-Republicans in the, in the House are trying to, quote, sabotage the legal challenges to Biden's extremist agenda. Paxton has made a name for himself, you know, aside from the mounting scandals for suing the Biden administration yeah. on several issues. So if his office and his office is scheduled to go to court on Thursday to argue against the Obama era deferred action for childhood arrivals, which a lot of people know is DACA. Okay. So it's unclear who All will right. be at the ham as this plays out. We'll have to leave it there. The Texas Newsroom's Julian Aguilar. Thank you. Thank you. In Colorado today, a judge is considering whether a Mexican-American high school senior will be allowed to participate in her graduation ceremony tomorrow. The student wants to wear a sash during the ceremony with the Mexican and American flags. The school district says she can't. Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander is covering this story. And Hallie, uh, the lawsuit the judge is hearing today was filed just this week, but the controversy's been around for a while. Tell us about how it started. Right. Well, the student is Naomi Pena Viasano, and she goes to school in the little town of Parachute in western Colorado. Back in March, she was applying to wear cords with her graduation gown that reflected her community service and school club honors. And she decided that she also wanted to wear a sash that represented her Mexican heritage. And she showed a secretary in the school's office an example of what it might look like. She said it looked like a traditional Mexican serape. They had, like, the Mexican flag, a few butterflies, because I'm, like, obsessed with butterflies. Um, so it was just, like, super, super cute. You know, I showed her, she's like, no, you can't. And I was like, well, why not? And she said, and I quote, it opens too many doors. It's too much. Opens too many doors. Any idea what the secretary meant by that? Yeah, well, in an email she got back in April, the school superintendent told Viasano that if they allowed her to wear the sash, they would have to let other students wear other flags to graduation. And there are at least three recognized flags that the district says could be considered offensive, like the Confederate flag. So they've opted to only allow sashes or cords from nationally recognized organizations like 4-H and ROTC. And Viasano, I take it, didn't accept that. 
No. She started petitions online and on paper to get support and says more than 6,000 people signed them so that she could wear the sash. The one she's planning to wear now has both the Mexican and American flags on it. She even met with Colorado's governor, who thinks all students should be allowed to wear sacred symbols of their faith and culture. But the school district wouldn't budge on its policy even after she had several meetings with administrators. So on Wednesday, she filed the lawsuit and she's being represented by MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Now, the lawsuit claims that the school district has allowed other students to wear flags and cultural regalia as recently as last year. Why is this sash different? Well, it's not. The lawsuit claims that in 2021 and 2022, Native American students were allowed to cross the stage wearing items of personal and cultural significance, including sashes, garlands, and flags. And it says that one student even wore a sash honoring her Mexican heritage. Her attorneys are arguing that this is discriminatory treatment and that they're violating her First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. So it's unclear why they've decided not to allow Viasano to do the same thing. The district hasn't been talking with reporters about it. Has Viasano said whether she's going to try to wear the sash, whether or not she prevails in this lawsuit? You know, so far, she's indicated that she's wearing the sash no matter what. That could change, though. She's a first-generation high school graduate and graduating with honors, so this ceremony means a lot to her. She says she doesn't want to have to choose between her right to free speech and receiving her diploma in front of her family. And now you said this is playing out in this little town called Parachute. Is there a big Mexican-American community there? Yeah, I mean, about a third of the surrounding county is Hispanic or Latino, but it's western Colorado, which is pretty white and pretty conservative. Villasato has been getting a lot of support, but some people there are speaking out against what she wants to do. Like, some people are commenting on her petition, saying that Americans graduating from schools in Mexico would never ask for this kind of treatment. That's Aspen Public Radio's Hallie Zander. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Time is ticking for many state legislative sessions to wrap up across the country, including in Texas. This year, Texas lawmakers have filed some 10,000 bills and resolutions. As the clock winds down, bills start dropping like flies. Here's the Texas Newsroom's Aurora Berry. If you're not a Texan, you might be wondering why I'm dragging you into the twisted procedural processes of the Texas legislature. But like it or not, it probably isn't so far off from what's going on in your own state capitol. Deadlines and chaos included. Every two years, lawmakers here arrive at the capitol in Austin to bring shiny new legislation to life. But... Many, many bills will die. Joshua Blank of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas says bill deaths shouldn't just be accepted, but expected. There's an infinite number of ways in which a bill can fail to become a law in the Texas system. And apparently, in a legislative murder mystery, there are lots of deadly weapons used to butcher bills. Here's what has to happen for a bill to dodge its demise. Each has to be assigned to a committee, then pass in it. Next, the bill is scheduled in the House or Senate. After that, it goes to that chamber, is debated and voted on, and goes to the other chamber for a vote there. 
It's a long and laborious process, and it all has to be done in under 20 weeks. What I say is visualize the Olympics and somebody is running the hurdles. University of Texas at Austin professor Sherry Greenberg was a state representative for 10 years. And they get over one hurdle and then there's another and there's another. And that is what it takes to pass a bill. One particularly high hurdle is called a point of order. That's when a bill gets to the House or Senate floor, but a member points out an instance where the rules were violated during the bill's journey. Then it's sent back to committee. Greenberg recalls when one of her early bills was taken out that way. That was a big learning experience for me. After that, I checked all of my own bills and had experts check them and had them check the entire process. A lesson she later used to block bills herself. Knowing the rules is a big advantage. After the setback of a point of order, a bill might make it back into the chambers, but Joshua Blank says that leaves it to face the most deadly killer of all. The clock in the short legislative session. Time! It comes for us all, even legislation. One way to kill a bill is just to wait around until it falls off the end of session cliff. And there are also ways to give it a little push, like this thing called chubbing. Chubbing is the process by which legislators engage in this extended debate around legislation simply to eat up the available time to consider bills. This funny word is no joke. A distant cousin of the filibuster, chubbing plays a big part in sinking legislation. So lawmakers must carefully choose which bills to pass with their precious time. Last session, around 10,000 bills and resolutions were proposed. A fraction, some 3,800, passed both chambers. And Blank says that's the way the system was designed to work. The process is not made to push legislation through the process too quickly in order to prevent ill-considered laws. In a way, bill death is just another part of the legislature's life cycle. Sherry Greenberg has this advice for current lawmakers mourning their losses. If first you don't succeed, try, try again. So farewell to all the dead bills. We barely knew thee. For NPR News, I'm Aurora Berry in Austin. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about 20 minutes, how the evolution of conservatism is playing out on the Republican campaign trail. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Long Hill in Beverly and Stevens Coolidge in North Andover. Revitalize North Shore public gardens and historic homes. Information at thetrustees.org slash gardens revitalized. If you are heading to the Cape for the long weekend, be aware. At the moment, traffic's heavy on the expressway. Route 3 South through Marshfield, Duxbury, and Plymouth is slow. Traffic is backed up about a mile at both the Bourne and Sagamore bridges. Traffic also is crawling on Route 95 through Foxborough and Mansfield. It is 58 degrees in Boston with lows in the upper 40s tonight. Sunny tomorrow and Saturday's highs in the mid-70s. Sunday, sunshine, highs reaching the mid-80s. On Monday, Memorial Day, low 70s at the coast in the 80s inland. Start the holiday weekend here on WBUR tomorrow. You'll get a reflection on the way that going out to a concert is a chance to forget about work and school and politics and pressure and just disappear collectively into song. You'll consider one Boston mom and Taylor Swift and the power of live music. Listen when you wake up tomorrow. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Peabody Essex Museum, Presenting Spirits, Sharing Sherpa with Robert Beer, closes May 29th, more at PEM.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Adam Burke agreed with those millennials who speak in fake British accents to lower their stress. Adam, you're Irish. I'm sure you're soothed by the sound of a British accent. Yeah, I I use it to go to sleep. It's the widest noise. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. Don't drift off when you listen to this week's show from New Orleans with special guest John Goodman. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Yesterday, the leader of the far-right group The Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, was sentenced to 18 years in prison for his role in the insurrection of January 6th. And this morning, a U.S. District Court judge announced a prison sentence for Jessica Watkins, an Oath Keeper who was found guilty for breaking into the Capitol that day. We have a good group. We got about 30, 40 of us. We're sticking together and... Sticking to the plan. On the media reporter, Micah Lowinger captured that audio of Watkins from a walkie-talkie app called Zello as he watched the insurrection play out from his home in New York. The recording later became a key piece of evidence in Watkins' trial. In this weekend's episode of On the Media, Lowinger grapples with the role his work played in helping send Watkins to prison. The story of my January 6th reporting began long before that day and dragged on long after. So what do you got? What kind of experience you got? Military, law enforcement, medical? 31 Bravo, military police. I know a lot about uh, weapons, munitions, and a fair amount of gear. I listened to countless hours of militia chatter like this on Zello throughout 2020 as extremist groups used conspiracy theories about Black Lives Matter and Antifa to recruit new members. It's like a second job. It's us or tyranny. It's us or failure. It's us or a post-American world. And are you all in over? got nothing holding me back for if it kills me it kills me these violent fantasies grew louder and louder which is how i knew to monitor militia channels on january 6 2021 we're one block away from the capitol now i'm probably gonna go silent when i get there because i'm gonna be a little busy this is jessica watkins a member of the oath keepers She was found guilty of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an official proceeding, interfering with law enforcement officers during a civil disorder, and conspiracy to prevent an officer from discharging duties. We are in the main dome right now. We are rocking it. They're throwing grenades. They're freaking shooting people with paintballs, but we're in here. Get it, Jess. This is what we lived up for. Everything we trained for. You can see why federal prosecutors wanted to play this audio for the jury. But when they asked me if I would testify voluntarily to verify its authenticity, my lawyer said no on my behalf. I thought that future sources would be less likely to trust me if it looked like I was, you know, buddy-buddy with the feds. I was already hearing about a conspiracy theory that January 6th was an inside job. We need a lot more answers about how many FBI agents not just were involved that day, but months beforehand including the infiltration in these alleged militia groups. This far-right reporter also wrote an article suggesting that I had been tipped off by undercover agents so that the feds could entrap well-meaning patriots. Needless to say, that's not true, and I didn't want to encourage any more conspiracy theories by participating in the trial. But then the Department of Justice came back with paperwork. 
Hey, Brooke, do you have a quick second? Sure. Uh, okay, so I think I was just subpoenaed. Call me back in five. Okay, sounds good. Bye. Bye. Brooke Gladstone, the host of On the Media, asked me to document my experience as a federal witness, a rare and fraught experience for a journalist. The value of your testimony is limited. They're asking you mm-hmm. for a little bit about your process of recording it, but you're not giving them any information beyond what any of our listeners heard. Brooke thought I should just relax and enjoy the attention on my work. But I felt I had done my job, and I thought it was time for the feds to do their job without me. There's also a complex history of the Department of Justice seeking to compel journalists to reveal their confidential sources. A Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times was sent to jail yesterday after she refused to identify a confidential source. Judith Miller has been found in contempt of court. Unlike Miller, I had no source to protect. I really had nothing to hide. Going to jail would be a pointless stunt. So I complied with the subpoena and took the stand in the first of the Oath Keeper trials last October. You sounded uncomfortable in a good way. (laughs) You know, like you were walking a line because you're a journalist and you don't want to sound like you're in there for the government. Roger Parloff, senior editor for Lawfare. He watched my testimony, Jessica Watkins' testimony, and testimony from an FBI agent who took the stand to play the Zello audio for the jury. We have a good group. We got about 30, 40 of us. What you hear on that tape... We're sticking together and sticking to the plan. ...is unambiguous in terms of a plan to invade the Capitol. So it, it was a very powerful piece of evidence. If it was so powerful, then why did Jessica get off easier than Kelly Meggs and Stuart Rhodes. They were charged with seditious conspiracy, and she was not. Correct. Now, she was convicted of two other conspiracies, of course. But as far as the seditious conspiracy, they apparently didn't feel there was proof beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, she did testify, and there were aspects of her biography that were sympathetic. What about it stuck out to you? Well, you know, she's a transgender woman, and her parents had disavowed her. And when she, you know, was in the military and she was beginning to have these thoughts about who she was, another soldier confronted her, you know, called her crude names. She was afraid for her life. She went to AWOL. She was discharged. So she really didn't fit in anywhere. And And then COVID hits, she ran a bar. And so the bar had to close, and she was in hard straits. So I think the jury could have felt for her as leading a very, very difficult life. It was my impression that she was less involved in a lot of the higher-level planning, as opposed to Megs and, and Rhodes. In fact, she was a little bit left out at times. Regardless of what role she played in the planning, she was one of the most violent because she led her group toward the Senate side once she got inside and really led them in a violent push against a group of riot police. I have complicated feelings about participating in Watkins' trial. I believe there should be consequences for the illegal and anti-democratic violence that took place on January 6th. But 
I also think that our justice system is deeply flawed. It can be racist and cruel and often fails to rehabilitate people. I didn't get into this line of work to play such an active role in locking people up. I'm proud my work had an impact and that I could help show America what the militia movement really represents. But I realize now that I was naive. I want to believe that the end game of journalism is truth, but sometimes it's prison. Micah Lowinger is a reporter for WNYC's On the Media. Subscribe to the show to hear his latest episode about the 1972 Supreme Court ruling that gave the government the authority to force reporters to reveal confidential sources. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From BritBox, with season two of The Tower starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Good afternoon, I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, a Nigerian chef tries to set a new world record for nonstop cooking. It's 58 degrees in Boston with lows dropping to the upper 40s overnight. A sunny Saturday, tomorrow's highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app, or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. After a years-long delay, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration is moving to crack down on a major U.S. drug distributor over its role in the opioid crisis. It's Friday, May 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Sharon Brody, and for Lisa Mullins, the Republican presidential primary is growing and candidates are trying to appeal to former President Trump's base. There's Trump and there's everyone else. So all of the candidates have to orient themselves around Trump to some degree. Also, the executive producer behind the show, American Born Chinese, explains why his graphic novel would not have been adapted for TV back in 2006 when it came out. Not just a, a majority Asian cast, it's a show where a significant amount of dialogue is delivered in Mandarin. It's a completely different world now. It's 6.01. News is next. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is now warning the government will run short of money to pay its bills unless Congress acts to raise the debt ceiling by June 5th. NPR Scott Horsley reports on the new timeline the secretary spelled out today. In a letter to lawmakers, Yellen says the government will make scheduled payments to veterans and Social Security recipients on June 1st and 2nd, but doing so will leave the government with very little cash on hand. Unless Congress acts quickly to allow additional borrowing by the government, there likely won't be enough money to make payments due the following week, June 5th. The new timeline is more precise than Yellen's earlier warnings, but also suggests lawmakers have a few more days to reach agreement on a new borrowing limit. The Treasury Secretary once again urged Congress to act quickly, noting the government's short-term borrowing costs have already increased as a result of the debt ceiling brinkmanship. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden welcomed NCAA women's basketball champs Louisiana State to the White House today. The event coming despite some bruised feelings after Jill Biden had at one point suggested runner-up Iowa also be invited. But today all that appeared forgotten with Biden hailing the team and pointing out women are taking over not just on the court. It's been 51 years Congress passed Title IX, guaranteeing all women and girls equal rights to participate not only in sports, but in any school program. Today, 58%, this, uh, my colleagues don't like me always mention this, but 58% of all college students are women. Title IX prohibits discrimination based on sex in federally funded education programs and activities. There is still sporadic fighting in Sudan, but the warring sides are complying more with the latest ceasefire. That's according to the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. The country's monitoring the agreement. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. A joint U.S.-Saudi statement says there have been improvements in Sudan despite early ceasefire violations. They say that some humanitarian aid has been delivered and maintenance crews took advantage of a lull in fighting to restore some telecommunication services in the capital Khartoum and in other parts of Sudan. But diplomats are raising concerns that the warring sides have stolen vehicles from a humanitarian convoy and blocked some aid deliveries. The ceasefire, which went into effect Monday, was meant to give humanitarian groups time to deliver assistance. It does not resolve the main dispute between Sudan's army and a rival paramilitary force. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A key price indicator closely watched by the interest rate setting Federal Reserve moved higher in April, a sign notwithstanding a string of rate hikes. The economy is still running a bit hotter than the central bank would like. The index closely watched by the Fed showed prices rising four-tenths of a percent. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street. The Dow up 328 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Mayor Wu's office says it will inform the court on Tuesday that the city has approved a new electoral map. Late today, the Boston mayor signed off on the ordinance covering new voting districts. Earlier this week, the city council agreed to the plan for new districts. A federal judge sent a previously approved map back to the city, saying it was most likely unconstitutional. State regulators confirmed today that they have launched an investigation into the ransomware attack on the parent company of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare. The Division of Insurance is monitoring the data breach at Point 32 Health. The insurance giant informed members earlier this week that their patient information might have been stolen in the April attack. Alston is a wonderland for music lovers this weekend. This afternoon, NPR Tiny Desk contest winner Elisa Amador kicked off Boston Calling. 
right now, the Dropkick Murphys are on the main stage. MIT grad student Alexander Yelland became a fan thanks to his parents. It's almost cool to see them come back to their homeland almost, right? Every time there's Boston's mentioned, um, I always think of the Irish community and then the Dropkick Murphys. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this, this makes sense that they would play here. The Boston Calling Festival's taking place at the Harvard Athletics Complex. Du Dong came from New York City to take it all in. I mean, you see so many people, you get a nice day out and uh, a lot of different things to try, new food, new music, new everything. It's kind of cool. In all, 17 bands are scheduled to perform today. 34 other bands are set to play tomorrow and Sunday when the festival will wrap up. Tonight, the Red Sox play the Cardinals in Arizona. It's 58 degrees in Boston with lows in the upper 40s overnight. A sunny Saturday, tomorrow's temperatures in the mid-70s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The Republican presidential field is starting to get crowded. I am tonight announcing my candidacy. This is a cultural movement to create a new American dream. I've been doing TV and radio for 40 years, mostly criticizing politicians. When you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I am a candidate for president of the United States. The next American century starts Today. I'm running for president to lead our great American comeback. Seven candidates, including a former president, a sitting senator, current and former governors, an entrepreneur and a talk radio host. They all have the same goal, winning over the conservative base. But how have the priorities of that base shifted since Trump's presidency? And how is this new crop of candidates playing to those voters? To talk more about all of that, we called up Molly Ball. She's a national political correspondent for Time magazine. Hey, Molly, welcome. Thanks, Juana. Great to be here. Walk us through, if you can, some of the nuance between these candidates. How are they differentiating themselves? Well, I think, first of all, there's Trump and there's everyone else. So all of the candidates have to orient themselves around Trump to some degree, whether it's on policy, whether it's on personality. Uh, So far, most of the contrasts that we're hearing are much more about sort of personality and tone. You have, you know, candidates like uh, Tim Scott trying to sell a more optimistic vision that's less less focused on conflict and and, and drama. Uh, A lot of the candidates are sort of implicitly uh, contrasting themselves uh, with the constant scandals that seem to surround Trump. Uh, I think with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, that's clearly a big part of the pitch. The idea being that uh, he might share a lot of policy positions with Trump, but he would be more effective because he wouldn't constantly be mired in scandal and he would be more focused on policy. I mean, you've been covering national politics for a long time. How different are some of the priorities that this crop of Republican candidates is running on compared to, say, what we might have seen in a Republican primary field a decade or so ago? It's very different. And I think you really see the changing face of the Republican Party in this year's crop of candidates. More than anything, you have a party that has refocused itself almost entirely on the so-called culture wars. And so where the traditional sort of Reaganite Republican Party was focused on the sort of famous uh, three-legged stool of a sort of international approach to national defense, a sort of hawkish foreign policy position, uh, a focus on, on small government 
government when it came to taxes and spending, and then a sense of the traditional family when it came to cultural issues, this Republican Party is much more populist, is much more fiscally liberal in some ways. I think it's a real difference from the past. As we've been talking about, Donald Trump's influence looms incredibly large as a candidate. He's a former president. He's running again. He leads in early polls. But I'm curious, when you think about conservative philosophy, conservative policy, how much power does he still have to set the agenda for his party? It's such an interesting question because I think we've seen Trump be both a leader and a follower. On the one hand, when you think about an issue like free trade that was such a core tenet of uh, Republican philosophy for so long, that was something that Trump just completely blew up starting in 2016. He identified that there was this sort of working class base of the Republican Party that was interested in things like tariffs, even if the thought of something like that would make a sort of a Paul Ryan blanch. Uh, and so so the party has followed him uh, in that direction. But he also, I think, has been a follower when it comes to some of this culture war stuff. Uh, issues about, uh, again, education, LGBTQ issues, particularly issues about uh, transgender kids. Uh, we've seen Trump, I think, follow the lead uh, of the base and of other politicians in embracing those issues. And that's clearly where the sort of pulse of the party is right now. Any candidates waiting in the wings who may enter the race and offer a significantly different conservative agenda compared to the candidates who have already declared? We still have yet to see former Vice President Mike Pence get in the race. He is offering something that's a much more traditional Republicanism offering to make the Republican Party great again, if you will, take it back to a sort of Reaganite vision. And then you have some more overtly anti-Trump candidates who are considering running. Someone like uh, Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, uh, Chris Sununu, the current governor of New Hampshire. Both of them have been quite blistering in their critiques of Trump and are somewhat unpopular with with the Republican base uh, as a result. But both of them and, and, and possibly some others are considering getting in the race just in order to have a candidate who would make that full-throated case against the frontrunner on the debate stage. So they really could bring uh, a very different argument to the, the Republican primary. That was Molly Ball. She's a national political correspondent for Time magazine. Molly, thank you. Thank you, Anna. After a four-year delay, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration is cracking down on a company that allegedly sold suspicious orders of opioid pills. The DEA says it will strip the firm Morrison-Dixon of its license to sell pain pills within 90 days unless some kind of settlement is reached. Critics say the government waited too long to take this action. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann is covering this. Hi. Hi, Ari. Uh, what did the government say this company did wrong? So Morrison Dixon's one of the four biggest drug wholesalers in the country. And like those other corporations, they earned a lot of money shipping vast quantities of these opioid pills, these highly addictive pain pills. The DEA says over a four-year period, Morrison Dixon shipped roughly 12,000 suspiciously large orders of pills without notifying authorities. So back in 2019, a federal judge concluded the company acted with cavalier disregard for federal safety rules. He urged the DEA to revoke the company's opioid license. So today, the DEA finally acted in this order signed by DEA Administrator Ann Milgram. The government says the firm failed to accept responsibility, and I'm quoting here, for the full extent of their wrongdoing and the potential harm it caused. So four-year delay in taking action. Why did the government take so long? 
Yeah, the DEA acknowledges this took years longer than typical. They blame the delays on the company's legal filings and on disruptions caused by the pandemic. But there's something interesting here. This delay follows closely on an investigation published by the Associated Press. The AP found one of the DEA's top officials, a guy named Louis Milioni, actually worked as a consultant for Morrison Dixon as the company was scrambling to avoid punishment. Milioni then joined the DEA in 2021, and this has raised concerns about the revolving door between the pharmaceutical industry and government regulators. In its legal filings, the DEA says Milioni recused himself uh, from any role in this case. They say he did not influence these delays. Now that the government has acted, what does the company say? Well, they sent a statement to NPR, and they actually thank the DEA for not revoking their opioid license immediately. There is now this final 90-day window for the company to work to reach some kind of settlement. And the company says they have already done a lot of work to improve safety systems and to improve their compliance with federal opioid rules. Put this into context for us. What role did drug distributors like this company play in the overall opioid crisis? Yeah. So what government officials and public health experts say is that these companies continue to sell and ship just vast quantities of pain pills to pharmacies all over the U.S. long after it became clear that these pills were being diverted and abused. Addiction rates and overdose deaths were soaring. It's also widely believed that these corporate practices really opened the floodgates to the wider opioid problem we're grappling with now, you know, street drugs like heroin and fentanyl. It's important to say the other three big distributors involved in the opioid business, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKesson, they have been allowed to continue selling pain pills and, and they've never acknowledged any wrongdoing, though they have agreed to pay more than $21 billion in settlements. One other thing here is that there has been intense criticism of the DEA and other federal regulators for not cracking down on all of these companies faster. So the delay in this case, it's renewed concerns that the government still isn't doing this oversight fast enough or aggressively enough. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Thank you. Thank you. Last week, a crowd gathered in Lagos, Nigeria, to celebrate an attempt at a new world record. Chef Hilda Bassi cooked for four days straight. She ended her cookathon at 100 hours of nonstop cooking. The previous record was 87 hours. Bassi learned to cook from her mother, who was a caterer, but she didn't grow up dreaming of being a chef. She actually wanted to study medicine. But then I just realized that cooking was something that came very naturally to me. And I remember doing it even in university where I used to cook for events in my school. So she became a chef. She owns a restaurant, makes cooking videos, teaches classes. And she thought one way to make a name for herself was to take on the Guinness World Record for marathon cooking. In the beginning, I was going through a huge wave of anxiety and fear. Bassie says the support of her brother and her fans kept her going through the physical and mental exhaustion. So there's something my brother had said to me that was so profound. And he said to me, you know what, you've not dropped yet. You're still standing and you're still able to put things in the pot. So just keep doing it until you can't do it anymore. She wanted to highlight African food in her world record attempt. And so the menu featured more than 55 recipes, many of them Nigerian. I made coconut rice. I made afang soup, egusi soup. I made ukwa. I made ukobi. Despite her exhaustion, Vasi says the cookathon was like a four-day-long party. Yeah. 
complete with a large crowd and lots of Nigerian music. Bassi says one artist who's not Nigerian was particularly inspiring. I listened to a lot of Taylor Swift. In fact, we had a whole Taylor Swift concert during the Kukatoon because, you know, I kept listening to love stories and you belong with me. Bassi tells us she's just submitted all her evidence to the Guinness World Records team and she hopes to hear back soon. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 618, and coming up in about 10 minutes, it's Marketplace. Disney's live-action remake of The Little Mermaid hits theaters today, and you'll take a look at the mermaid industry. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. On Wall Street, the Dow gained 1% today. The S&P closed up 1.3%. The Nasdaq ended the day up just over 2%. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a flexible and relevant degree that helps expand your network and further your career. bc.edu slash analytics. And Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local, sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Here's what the holiday weekend getaway looks like at the moment on the roads. Traffic's heavy on the expressway. Route 3 south through Marshfield, Duxbury, and Plymouth. That's slow. Traffic's backed up about a mile at the Bourne and Sacamore bridges. Traffic is crawling on Route 95 through Foxborough and Mansfield. The forecast looks good for outdoor events throughout the long weekend. Here's WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce. This beautiful stretch of weather is going to continue for the next several days at least, along with a warming trend. Tonight will be mostly clear, cooling into the 40s for many of us, rebounding quickly tomorrow, though, in the mid to upper 70s with lots of sunshine. Sunday will be the warmest day this weekend. We'll climb into the low to mid 80s with mostly sunny skies and a gusty southwest breeze. Memorial Day will be a little bit cooler, mainly at the coast in the low 70s, but still very pleasant and around 80 inland. It is 58 degrees in Boston now. And remember, tomorrow morning on WBUR, you can catch up with the news. You'll hear tomorrow about how extending the life of the things you already own instead of throwing stuff out can be an advantage. That's here on 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu graduate. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. American Born Chinese opens with the beginning of a new school year for Jin Wang. He's a Chinese-American teen who just wants to be a normal high school student, playing on the JV soccer team and flirting with his crush. Until he is pulled out of class and introduced so, to a new student. Uh, what's going on? 
Hi, 你好。Hi. 我没有想要在这边还可以遇到同乡的。Oh, hey, oh, uh, so sorry, but, but my Chinese isn't super good. Oh. Well, this is Wayne Chang. Wei Chen. He's a new student and he's Chinese, like you. Uh, okay. The two get off to a bit of a rocky start, but Jin soon realizes that his new friend, Wei Chen, isn't just any foreign exchange student. He is actually from a supernatural realm. His dad is the powerful, mythical Chinese figure known as the Monkey King. He lives in heaven. His name is Sun Wukong. He's a Monkey King. Okay, cool. Jin, wait. I know it's hard to believe, but it's real. This show, American Born Chinese, was adapted for Disney from the 2006 graphic novel of the same title. It was written and illustrated by Jean Luen Yang. American Born Chinese, the book, is set in the vague 80s, 90s, which matches my own childhood. And in it, he tackles racist stereotypes of Asian people. So, a warning. Our discussion of those racist stereotypes will include a racial slur. Yang, who's also an executive producer on the show, says that the creative team decided to set the TV series in the present-day 2020s rather than in the past, which meant that the show had to differ quite a bit from the original book. The conversation about Asian Americans, about race in general, has changed from then until now. One of the hopes is that, you know, if you read the book and you also watch the show, that the differences will say something about what's changed for us as a community. Including the way anti-Asian racism shows up in our everyday lives now. One of the biggest changes they made was how the show portrayed one particular character. In the graphic novel, the character is this amalgamation of a bunch of racist stereotypes of Chinese people. He has narrow eyes, buck teeth, a braid, he speaks with an over-the-top accent, and he has an intentionally offensive name. Chin Ki. I asked Jean Luen Yang why he wanted to create such an exaggerated racist character for his book all those years ago. I would trace uh, the origins of that character to my senior year English class in high school. We did uh, a mm. unit on satire. You know, we read a modest proposal. And I was kind of struck by the power that satire has to critique society. And you're right, he is intentionally offensive. He was the embodiment of all of these ideas about who I was, who we are, that have haunted me since I was a kid. You know, and, and in a lot of ways, doing that portion of the book, drawing that character on paper, was kind of like an exorcism. So by the end of the book, I actually have this um, this panel where I take off his head. And there was just something very, very satisfying about drawing that panel. Mm. And in fact, that character was one of the reasons, one of the big reasons why I was so hesitant for so long. Yeah, tell me why. Because I read that that character was part of the reason you didn't want to adapt the book for screens. Yeah. Why? Yeah, I was I was kind of freaked out. I was freaked out that if that character ever made it onto the screen, um, decontextualized clips of that character would show up on social media. And it would be the exact opposite of what I was trying to do with the book. You know, I, I feel like... Um, in the book, I have enough pages to make it very clear that I'm working within the confines of satire. But once it's released, I was freaked out that people would just clip it. Right. Make ubiquitous this totally offensive character. But yeah, let me ask right. you about the solution that the TV series team came up with, because Chin Ki takes on a totally different form in the show. Instead, his name is Freddie Wong. He's a mm -hmm. character from like a 90s sitcom. Beyond Freddie Wong is himself a stereotype. Ah, yes. 
Oh, Mr. Henderson, rest in peace. He have gone to meet his Maytag. This character is a short man, has a bowl haircut, wears dorky clothes, always gets bonked on the head. That's my wise answer to say, what could go wrong? Why did you feel the Freddie Wong character was the way to adapt the Chin Key character for a TV screen? Yeah, we needed a character that represented those stereotypes that have haunted us. You know, so it was a, a conversation between Melvin Marr, an, another executive producer, Kelvin Yu, who ended up being the showrunner and me. And a lot of that came out of Kelvin's own experience. So what Kelvin did, which I thought was brilliant, was first he took the fear that I had about this cousin character getting decontextualized and showing up on social media. He he took that fear and he made it a plot point in the very first episode. And then the second thing he did was he um, took that cousin character and he kind of uh, fed it through his own experience as an Asian American actor in Hollywood. And out came Freddie Wong. But was there a fear that Freddie Wong would also then be taken out of context and turn into some real life meme, just like he did in the TV show? Yeah, that's right. I, I think what we're hoping is that because that happens in the television show, uh, and it's because it happens in the very first episode, that uh, the story itself will teach the audience how to think about characters yeah. like that. Right. Like in, in the story itself, you actually see the impact of those images on the main character and on his feelings and his relationship towards his family. Mm-hmm. When your graphic novel came out back in 2006, could you have imagined it becoming this huge TV series from a major studio? No. Like what are you what are you, what are you no. processing right now? <laughs> no, it's my my life has been really strange. When the book came out in 2006, there just wasn't a lot of interest in adapting it to the screen. I think people were worried about whether a mostly Asian cast would be able to carry a show, you know? Uh and and there was some talk about adapting it as an animated series because if you did that then you could at least get some big name non Asian actors to voice some of the characters. That was the thought. Interesting. So to go from a world like that to, to now, where you have a studio like Disney willing to invest in a show that has not just a, a majority Asian cast, but it's a show where a significant amount of the dialogue is delivered in Mandarin. You know, that's mm -hmm. um, it's a completely different world now. Times have changed. So what do you hope for kids like Jin, who are from Asian immigrant families, what do you hope that they will take away from watching a TV show like this? Part of my growing up experience is accepting my own heritage, you know, accepting the, the history of me and my family and seeing the things that used to embarrass me as a kid as a strength, as th those things are things that I ought to be proud of. And I mm -hmm. hope... Um, Anybody who watches, they are able to see the things that are difficult in their lives that they might even find embarrassing as gifts. I love that. Well, I hope that lesson does imprint. Jean Luen Yang is the executive producer and graphic novel author behind the new TV series, American Born Chinese. Thank you so much for being with us. I so enjoyed this, Jean. Yeah, thank you. It was really an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. 
Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. Marketplace is next at 6.30. Listening to 90.9 WBUR is a great way to keep up with the news. Another easy option? It can show up in your inbox. Each weekday morning, WBUR Today gives you a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. Subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. This weekend's big musical event is Boston Calling at the Harvard Athletic Complex in Alston. Go to WBUR.org today for a compelling portrait of one very popular New England artist taking the stage, Noah Kahn. It's 58 degrees in Boston with lows overnight in the upper 40s. A sunny Saturday, highs in the mid-70s. Sunday, sunshine, highs in the mid-80s. On Memorial Day on Monday, low 70s at the coast in the 80s inland. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, a homegrown neighborhood deli featuring handcrafted sandwiches, soups, salads, and local ice cream. Ours at volantefarms.com.